let me remind you of some important announcements and some things to pray about. First of all, we're planning a baptismal service July 9th. For those who are going to be baptized, uh, I want to have a meeting Sunday after church just to discuss the time, and then we'll, uh, we'll schedule the time. It'll be July 9th at Grace Bible Church over on Schroeder Road. Also, uh, this coming Saturday night, we're having our uh, fellowship dinner from 6 to 8. We're going to have burgers and hot dogs, and we're going to watch the film God is Not Dead. I have, I'm putting together, I've watched it, it's very good and uh, very interesting, and we're going to put, I'm going to put together some questions so everyone can think about them as they are watching what's going on in the film. That will make it a little more uh, focused in terms of uh, the watching. It's not just a nice little story. Okay, there's significant things that are said, movements that are made in arguments, presentation, so it's interesting to think about that. Also, uh, sign up for sides or to bring desserts and sign up if you're coming so we can have a good head count in terms of how many people are there. Also, uh, uh, men's prayer breakfast is this uh, Saturday morning at 7.30, followed by the deacons meeting. And then uh, Jeff Phipps is taking another uh, trip down to teach in Brazil. He's going to be teaching an Old Testament survey and Bible study methods in Natal, and I'm not sure how to pronounce it, P-I-C-U-I, in Brazil. Uh, He'll be leaving on May 26th and returning on June 6th. He's also going to be meeting with the Natal... uh, Evangelical Pastors Association to talk about future conferences. So it's a great opportunity to expand our ministry and outreach into uh, Brazil. The financial uh, needs for this trip are estimated to be between $2,500 and $2,800. If anybody would wish to contribute to help defray the costs of that trip, you can do so and just uh, let uh, make a donation to West Houston Bible Church, and we will pass those funds through to Jeff. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. I started sneezing during prayer meeting, and now I've got this congestion, runny nose, whatever. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. We need to make sure that we're in right relationship with the Holy Spirit, walking by the Spirit. In case we have sinned or out of fellowship, we need to confess sin to be cleansed, forgiven, recover our walk by the Spirit. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray.
Father, we're thankful for this time that we have to come together to study your word. We're thankful that you have cared and loved us so much that you provided your word for us. We're thankful that through your love you've provided so much for us and that you have given us such a rich spiritual life. Father, we're thankful for the lessons that we learn from studying your word. And we pray that God the Holy Spirit would make these things very clear to us because as we study, we see that the things that we look at in Scripture, even though they may be from events three or 4,000 years ago or from 2,000 years ago, but nevertheless, they are relevant, they're significant, they speak of situations and circumstances that are common to all of us. And as we study in this chapter, help us to understand key important principles about humility, grace orientation, and learning to live today in light of eternity. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 25, verses 1 through 44. This is a long chapter, a long episode, and I think that at stories and episodes like this, it's important to take them as a whole, although I don't know if we'll make it through everything that's here, but the reality is that in long sections like this that are mostly uh, narrative, that are mostly story, then it's not so difficult to move through a lot of verses. This is a situation that occurs... Um, following the episode in chapter 24 when David is in the cave at En Gedi, Saul comes in to relieve himself. David has the opportunity. In fact, he's encouraged by his men to kill Saul. He does not do it. In fact, afterward, he um, feels regret because what he did do was cut off the hem of Saul's, uh, Saul's garment, indicating that he could have harmed Saul if he had wished, but he recognized that it was not his responsibility to take Saul out. It was not his, no matter how much Saul had done against David and was seeking to kill David. And as I pointed out last time, this was the 15th of 16 attempts to kill David, uh, which many of us would say, well, that's more than enough justification to take Saul out. But we have to recognize the importance that Scripture places on on authority. And so when we look at this episode, it's then followed in the text by the, um, the notation in verse 1 of Samuel's death, and then the story of uh, Nabal and Abigail. And so Nabal is the poster child for being a fool. And Abigail is the poster child for being a wise and mature believer. So that's definitely part of the contrast that is going on in chapter 25 and the lesson there. But the question that we will have to answer is why is this episode here? You know, why has God revealed this to us and put it in this location where we have an episode where Saul, Saul is uh, in it unwittingly in David's presence and unknowingly 
uh, has put himself in harm's way. David could kill him and doesn't. That's chapter 24, and it happens again in chapter 26. And why is this episode with Nabal and Abigail sandwiched in in between? Well, we'll address that in just a minute. Let's look at the first verse. First verse tells us that Samuel died. The beginning, the time notation then indicates this has happened while David is still in his wilderness wanderings trying to avoid Saul's attempts on his life. And it's at this time that Samuel, the uh, very aged prophet of Israel, uh, dies. This is a major turning point in the history of Israel because Samuel is the last of the judges. He is the uh, first major prophet to follow Moses. He is the last of the judges. He is the one who has anointed the first king, which begins the first period of Israel's monarchy. But with the death of Samuel, there is a definite shift in uh, Israel's history. This takes place while David is at En Gedi in the area of Judah. And we're told in verse 1, Samuel died. And the Israelites gathered together and lamented for him. This would have been an enormous funeral. And they buried him at his home in Ramah. Now, the Middle Eastern peoples are very, um, very overt in their demonstration of grief and their demonstration of sorrow. And we know from uh, the cultures around Israel and from some indications in Scripture that this would have been a time of the overt expression of, of great sorrow. And probably thousands of Israelites would have come, would have made a journey to Ramah in order to uh, bring honor and respect to Samuel. We're told that they buried him at his home in Ramah. Now, that's very unusual. This is not normal to bury someone in their house And there's an indication, there's a couple of things that are going on here uh, culturally. One that we know of in Ugarit, which was a Canaanite city that was in the far north up in what we would refer to today as Lebanon or Syria. The... uh, uh, it was not uncommon to bury people in their houses because they worshiped their ancestor spirits. That is definitely not what is going on here. Uh, I think that what is going on here is an attempt to prevent anyone from uh, worshiping uh, Samuel. And that seems to be the reason for this is to uh, discourage any any. Uh, attempt to venerate his tomb. Now, the picture I've put on the slide here is a mosque and memorial to the prophet Samuel. Remember, Muslims always venerate Old Testament prophets. They just think that Jesus is another Old Testament prophet. Uh, But this is Nevi. You can see this is the uh, Arabic and uh, for the prophet Samuel. And this is the alleged burial site in Israel. We've never gone there on any of the tours. That's because it's probably not the burial site of Samuel, so it's not worth going to. But I thought that I would uh, put the picture up here so that you could see that. And we're told that after this uh, time of uh, memorial for Samuel, 
that David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now, if you have a New King James or King James, it says wilderness of Paran. If you've got an NIV, it says the wilderness of Maon. And that's because there's a textual variant in the background. And uh, this map will help explain it a little bit. The Septuagint has the wilderness of Maon, and the Masoretic text has the wilderness of Paran. There's a debate about which is uh, the more likely. If you look at this map, you will see the location here is in Gedi on the Dead Sea. Uh, it is to the to the east of the wilderness of Ziph. And remember, the Ziphites were the ones who betrayed David back in chapter 23. They will betray him again in chapter 26. They are not his friends. Uh, they want to kiss up to Saul and tell Saul where David is. So, But this is that uh, just barren desert area to the west of Engedi. To the a uh, little bit south of due west of Engedi are two uh, locations, the area of Maon, the village or town of Maon, and the town or village of Carmel. This is not like Mount Carmel, which is far in the north where Elijah uh, challenged the prophets of Baal. That's in a uh, another location completely. But this is the location of the action in chapter chapter 25. The area to the south southeast of uh, Carmel and Maon is the wilderness of Maon, which is just south of the wilderness of Ziph. Further south, much more removed from Carmel and from the villages of Carmel and Maon, you have the wilderness of Paran, which extends far south off the map down into the Sinai. This is in the Negev. Negev is a Hebrew term for just the south, but it refers to the southern part part of, of Israel. All of this, most of this territory that we see in the center part of the map here is all part of the tribal allotment uh, to Judah. Now, it seems to me that Maon may be the more uh, correct reading simply because it appears from the context that... Um, David arose, went down to the wilderness. If he goes to the wilderness of Maon, he is very close to where all the action in the chapter takes place. That makes it the more likely location, although textual critics will say that the more difficult reading is the one that you should take. I've never quite appreciated uh, why that is so, because sometimes the more uh, the more difficult reading is... Uh, is just more difficult. It doesn't make sense within the context. And so, uh, anyway, he is down here in this area, very close to the area where Nabal has his business and his his farm. And so, uh, this is the background, just giving us the background of what's going on here. Now, the question then that comes up is, a little bit about why this event. Why are we told about this? What is going on here? And there's eight reasons why this would be in the text, why we need to pay attention to this. First of all, we notice, as I pointed out uh, at the beginning, 
that this is sandwiched between two episodes where Saul is in the uh, proximity of David, where David is so close that he could reach out and kill Saul, and he doesn't do it. So he has that opportunity to kill uh, to kill Saul, which would be a tremendous act of arrogance on his part as he's seeking to um, to get his vengeance on Saul rather than trusting in the Lord, letting the Supreme Court of Heaven work things out. And this is, remember, this period from 1 Samuel, really from 1 Samuel 17 with, with Goliath, until the end of this book, David is in a training session. It probably lasted somewhere between five and ten years, and God is teaching David elementary principles of leadership. He's bringing him to maturity, and key to leadership is understanding humility and grace orientation it's also understanding the faith rest drill and trusting God and something that we'll see in this episode David has to learn that God has a plan for his life and he needs to trust God to bring that about and not to trust in his own effort lessons which are true for every one of us we need to learn to walk by faith and not by sight and not try to handle every situation on our own so David passes the test in chapter 24, but he starts off in failure in chapter 25 because when he hears about the uh, contemptuous lack of respect of Naval for his men that he sent to Naval and his lack of gratitude for what David's men have provided in terms of providing security and perfection and protection for uh, Naval's uh, uh, shepherds and for those who are watching his flocks, uh, David reacts in anger, tries to, and, and his desire is to kill not only Naval, but all of his men, and just to wipe them out. And in the process, Naval's wife, who is wise, seeks to, uh, appeals to David, appeals to him on the basis of who David is, appeals to him on the basis of God's plan for David, showing that she has a tremendous amount of understanding of God's plan and purposes. She understands uh, the doctrines that have been taught at that time, doctrine simply being a word indicating the teaching of Scripture. She knows what has been taught. She trusts the Lord, and she comes to him in all humility and grace orientation, she shows tremendous respect for David, and she presents a case to David, and David shows his humility in that he recognizes that she's right, and he completely changes uh, the direction that he is going in terms of his desire to take things into his hand and to kill Naval. So David is moves from being in reaction, in anger, and emotional to calming down, recognizing, focusing on God's plan and purpose for his life, and this causes him to change and put things back into God's hands, and then God, God deals with the situation. So David is learning through all three of these chapters to trust the Lord and to put things in the hands of the of the Supreme Court of Heaven. Uh, when we get after this, we'll get into the last two or three episodes before uh, the end the end of the book. 
The lessons, therefore, in this chapter is that the future king of Israel, as a leader, uh, David must learn to trust in God for justice and not in himself. He's learning genuine humility, and he's not asserting his own plan over against God's plan. And in the chapter, by the end of the chapter, God will avenge David much in a much better way than David would have. And David learns that it is better to leave God in control than to handle it himself. Also, what we see in the contrast between Naval the fool and all that goes along with that, and Abigail, who is a wise woman, that she will become David's third wife, and she will bear him his first son, his firstborn son, Amnon, and that she's a spiritually mature woman. She is a picture of the Proverbs 31 woman, the godly wife, and we see some interesting things exhibited by her in the way she functions as a wise wife. And so we'll pay attention to those those things. Um, she is called a woman who has... Um, good understanding. This is this is a term that indicates she has spiritual insight, spiritual discernment, and this is the same kind of language that David prayed when he prayed that the Lord would in uh, that the Lord would give his son Solomon wisdom, First Chronicles twenty two twelve. So this says a lot about her her character. There's no sense at all in the passage that there's anything wrong, anything immoral that is taking place between them at this time. As far as we know, David did not know Abigail at all prior to this episode. And as a result of this episode, he's impressed with her her character, her spiritual maturity, her discernment, and her understanding of the situation so that after God... Uh, executes Naval and takes him out of the picture, then David will marry her. So we see her as a model of spiritual maturity and wisdom, and she's contrasted to a husband who is a fool. He's foolish. He is harsh. He's unlikable. She is everything he is not, and he is everything she is not. They are uh, polar opposites. So she is a picture of how a wise, godly woman lives in a marriage where the husband is a jerk and a fool and an idiot and is very difficult to, to live with. So another thing we should note is after Nabal dies, because Nabal is, Nabal is very wealthy in that culture. He is wealthy. He owns property. He's living in uh, Hebron, which is, put the map back up here. He's living in Hebron, which is located here, which is sort of the capital, uh, the central uh, settlement, the central village or city in Judah. And he, he is a man of wealth and property. And so when David marries his widow, he becomes a man of property. He take, receives that. That's part of now his position. He becomes a man of substance in Hebron so that when Saul dies, David is first recognized as king over Judah, and he reigns in Hebron for seven years. So this, by marrying her, he is establishing a power base that is going to develop and build in, uh, 
in Judah. So throughout this, we see the providential hand of God working in David's life, just as he works in our life, tailoring circumstances and situations to our spiritual benefit, giving us the opportunity to grow and mature. Now, in verses 2 and 3, we are introduced to the central characters of this drama, uh, Nabal the fool and Abigail the wise. Verse 2, we read, Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. Uh, Literally, in the Hebrew, it says he had sheep, 3,000 and 1,000 goats. So it's a chiasm emphasizing at the center the number of sheep and the number of goats that he has. The sheep were valuable, as we've studied with the judgment of the sheep and the goats in in, uh, Matthew. Sheep were valuable because they produced wool. Goats were less so. And so, but usually the herds or the flocks would have a mixture of the two, as we see here, more sheep than goats. And now it's sheep shearing time. Sheep shearing time is either in the fall or in the spring. And after it's, it's similar to harvest time. After the sheep shearing is over with, everybody has worked hard and there is a large feast and celebration. That's the context of what is going on here. In verse 3, we're told about uh, the two characters. The name of the man is Naval, and the name of his wife, Abigail. She was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance, so she's bright, she's, she's sharp, she's spiritually focused, and she is also beautiful. But in contrast, Naval is harsh and evil, and he is, then we're told he's of the house of Caleb. Now, why is that significant? Caleb the dog, yeah, but he is a descendant of Caleb. Caleb and Joshua were the two spies who went into the land, who trusted God. When uh, they finally entered the land, 40 years later, Caleb is the senior. uh, Caleb and Joshua are the senior military men. Caleb is the one who goes in to capture uh, capture Hebron, and this is where he establishes his base of operations. So Caleb is a strong believer. Naval is a descendant of Caleb, and he is, uh, he is just the opposite. But one of the other things you should note is that David is from Bethlehem. Bethlehem is often referred to as Bethlehem Ephrathah. And we know of the prophecy in Micah 5.2 that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem Ephrathah. Why, why those two names? Because Ephrata is the name of Caleb's second wife who gave birth to the man who is the founder of Bethlehem. And you can read about this in uh, 1 Chronicles 2, verse 19 and 51 through 54. Caleb married Ephrata after his first wife died, and she is said to be the mother of the... Uh, sons of her, her was uh, a contemporary of Moses, and so these are descendants that come down from her, and she has one son who is named Shobal, and he's the father of Kiriath Jerim. Now Kiriath Jerim is a very is a small 
That was sort of the ancient village just outside of Hebron. They sort of butt up together now. On the next trip to Israel, the one we're planning for June of 2018, I've never taken a group down into Judah. This is uh, area, area B, which allows uh, Jews to enter and to go down to Hebron and to go to the tomb of the patriarchs. This is where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are buried. Abraham and Sarah. You have Jacob and Leah. Why? Because Rachel died on the way down, and she's uh, buried outside of Bethlehem. And then Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac and Rebekah's uh, grave are there. Uh, marker they're they're buried down below in the cave of Machpelah, and so you have uh, at the time of Herod, you know Herod the great builder, he built this huge edifice around the tomb, and so when you go there, you're at the ground level, and they're buried below, but there's a a, a couple of large uh, tomb-like sarcophagus-like um, uh, markers there, memorials there. And on the Israeli side, you can see the um, uh, Abraham and Sarah and um, Jacob and Leah, but you can't see uh, Isaac and Rebekah. That's on the Palestinian side. And if you want to go there, you actually have to go out. You have to drive a long, circuitous route of 10 or 12 miles to come in and go through a border crossing and come in on the other side. Now, Hebron is an area that's a kind of a mix. There's a lot of uh, terrorist activity that has taken place in and around there, but if you come in from the Israeli side, it's secure, and then you also go through Kiriath-Jerim, which is a location where there's a tremendous, it's very small, but it's a tremendous local museum. And uh, so I'm looking forward to taking a group, uh, a group there. So this is Hebron, and Hebron is uh, the central, uh, central city there. And uh, Caleb, uh, Caleb's wife Ephrata, gives birth to Salma, who then founds the village of Bethlehem. And so it is also named for for his mother Ephrata. So this is where David comes from. So David's family is going to be related as well to that if distant relatives is related to Naval. So this is uh, sort of the family connection here between David and Naval. So his name, though, uh, we learned that he's quite wealthy, according to verse 2, and... Um, but he's called uh, a fool. Naval is the Hebrew word for fool. Now, this raises a question. Was this his name? Was this a nickname where we don't know his actual name? We just know his nickname. Everybody seemed to know he was uh, churlish and foolish, and uh, he was very difficult to get, a, get to, uh, uh, to be around. If he was one of the seven dwarfs, he would have been grumpy. Uh, this is who he was. And so uh, we don't know whether this was his actual name, it was a nickname, or if there was a name, and this happens sometimes, there's a name that sounds like it's a homonym for uh, another word. So he wouldn't have been... Mothers usually don't name their children the fool. Usually doesn't happen. They're a little more complimentary of their children than that. 
So it could be that the name Naval was meant something else, but it's a homonym. That means a word that may be spelled similarly, sounds the same, but means something else. It may be a different root. Um, so we don't know. There's a lot of debate over that. I, I take the view that this was his nickname, that he was called this because these were the characteristics uh, that he uh, exhibited. So we have to remember also, as we're studying the fool, what the biblical doctrine of a fool is. What makes a person a fool is not that they're stupid, not that they're ignorant, but that they live their life as if they're not accountable to God, as if there is no God. The fool has said, not overtly, when we watch God's Not Dead on Saturday night, we're going to, part of the story involves a philosophy professor who, who makes all of the students sign a paper at the beginning of the first class to, stating that God is dead. And one of the students, who's a Christian, won't sign it, will not write that on his paper. And so the uh, professor demeans him, ridicules him, uh, puts him down, is always antagonistic to him, and forces him to defend his proposition that God is not dead. That's the thrust of the, of the film. And so the issue is, how are you, one of the questions to think about, is how would you handle that kind of a situation where someone is telling you that you must deny the existence of God you must or, or, or you won't have anything he will per, this guy will personally destroy the student's academic career and any hope that he has to fulfill his uh, academic aspirations and his desire uh, to be a lawyer so the bible says that uh, we often think of of a of a fool as an atheist. When we think about the verse, the fool said in his heart, "There is no God." Uh, it's not like that guy. That guy is saying it overtly with his mouth. The fool has said where, not with his mouth, but in his heart. In other words, in the way he thinks, in the way he lives his life, he may overtly live as if he's a Christian. He may say all the right things, go to church on Sunday morning. But if he lives his life as if he's not accountable before God, if he lives his life as if God doesn't exist, then he is saying in his heart, in his mental attitude, that there is no God. He is a functional atheist, even though he may overtly claim to be something else. So Old Testament prophets uh, are those who... Uh, claim that the ungodly, the person who disregards the existence of God, are fools. That's stated in Psalm uh, 14.1, as well as other, other passages. So this man is a representative of the fool who does not believe that God rules in the lives of men. So he is a hard and evil man, and he has, uh, he's harsh, he's evil, in all of his doings, he has no morals, no ethics, and he is viewed by even those who work for him as a horrible, unjust, untrustworthy individual. So as we look and read on, we see the situation develops in verse 4, that David, as he is down in the wilderness, 
Going back to our map here, while David is somewhere nearby in the wilderness of Paran or Maon or somewhere nearby, uh, David hears that it's the time of the shearing of the sheep and that this is a great feast. So this is an opportunity to uh, go to uh, Nabal and see if Nabal will provide some some groceries, basically, for his men. Now, nobody's talking about enough here to feed all 600 of David's men, but David's men have performed a service for Nabal. And so he sends 10 men, and the text says in verse verse uh, 5, David sent 10 young men, and David said to the young men, so the term's repeated twice, go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. Now, one thing you should note is this term young men, which is also used in 1 Samuel 9, 3, has a military connotation in this context. Remember, these are David's 600 mighty men, and so it might even be translated warriors or soldiers. So David is sending his men there. These just aren't 10 nice young men, uh, college boys, or athletes. They are part of David's um, David's army that he is uh, in charge of down in the wilderness and providing protection for the people in Judah. He's doing this uh, as the Philistines have invaded. He's not running a protection racket, but he is providing protection in a time of apparent lawless, both lawlessness because Saul's not providing uh, the protection that he should, and it's a time when the Philistines are constantly trying to make incursions into Judah. So David is fulfilling, even though he doesn't have the office of king yet, he is functioning like a king in providing protection for his people. Now, what's interesting is that he, in the past, his men have stayed with Naval's shepherds. So David was a shepherd, and when he was a shepherd, he learned the importance of his responsibility to take care of the sheep and protect the sheep, and he's learning leadership traits. Now, he is protecting the shepherds. So you see that as he has been faithful in a little, now he is being faithful in much more. So he sends his men down there, and they are given a greeting. He says, uh, thus you shall say to him, peace be to you, peace be to your house, and peace to all that you have. Standard uh, Middle Eastern greeting, shalom, shalom to you, shalom to your house, shalom to all that you have. And so the men are very respectful of Naval, and they are presenting and offering a blessing to Naval and his household. They uh, wish the man to have good health and long life and peace. But uh, what's interesting is Naval's not going to get either one of those. And they tell him in verse 7 that uh, I've, they, they have heard that he has shearers, and reminding them of the blessing, the benefit that they provided for him. Remember, you go back to the Abrahamic covenant. Part of the responsibility of the Jews is to be a blessing to others, to be a blessing to their neighbors. So that's what they're reminding him, that they have provided for them. And they say, your shepherds were with us. We did not hurt them. We didn't harm them nor was anything missing from them all the while they were in Carmel. We watched over them and we protected them. 
Verse 8, ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let David is saying, let my young men find favor in your eyes. Be gracious to my young men. They have done things for you. We've come on a feast day. It's typical of a feast day to be uh, gracious and sharing. And David says, please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son David. If you've got anything that you would like to uh, graciously give our men in gratitude for what they have done, then do so. And yet the response that they get from uh, Naval the fool is given in verse 10. This is his reaction. There's not an ounce of grace in him, no kindness in him at all. He is an evil and harsh man. And he answers in verse 10, Then Nabal answered David's servant and said, Who's David and who's the son of Jesse? What he is saying there is, Who cares about who your, who your boss is? He's a nobody. Who is he? He's nothing. He is contemptuous of David. He ridicules him. He is, he is in, in great, ungrateful uh, for what they have provided uh, to him. And he says, Look, David is nothing more than a rebellious slave. He is breaking away from his master. This is common today, and so he's not worth paying attention to. He's totally in the wrong. And then verse 11, I want you to notice I've underlined eight first-person singular pronouns. In one verse, this is his response. It's all about him. It might remind you of a recent president that we had who in his speeches was very fond of repeating the first person singular pronoun numerous times because apparently it was all about him just like it's all about Naval. So Naval says, Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and and it doesn't have the I repeated, but it's in the Hebrew. And I give it to men when I do not know where they are from. I, I, me, 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 it's all about him. So he just rebuffs them completely. He's rude to them. He is ungrateful to them. And he sends them back. Now, David's men have reminded him of what David has done and that he has been very kind and gracious to him and his men, but he's ungrateful. And so uh, he sends them packing. He sends them on their way. So then we have the response. When David's men go back, they turned on their heels and they went back and they reported to David everything that had been happening. Now, this is a huge insult to David, the height of disrespect and David reacts, as many of us would, in anger. He is very emotional here, and he immediately responds. He doesn't pray, which is what we've seen before, where he seeks the Lord to, to decide what to do. He immediately has his men um, arm themselves and to put on their battle gear, and they're going to go, and they're going to take care of all of... of uh, of uh, Nabal's men. He takes 400 men with him, leaves 200 behind in order to uh, protect the camp and protect the women and the children that were also uh, in the camp. And so that gives us the David's reaction. David is in carnality here. He is clearly out of fellowship, and he is not thinking according to Scripture. 
and he is not walking with the Lord at this point. He is in reaction and in anger. Now, at the same time, we're told in verse 14 that a report comes to Abigail. So we've seen Nabal and his character. We've seen David a little bit out of character at this point, reacting in anger. And then we see Abigail. Now, uh, one of the young men uh, told Abigail, this would be one of the servants of Nabal, uh, either that or one, uh, probably one who had gone with the men of David, whatever it is, he, um, uh, this is one of Nabal's servants because he talks about David sending messengers, and he's giving a report as to what had happened to Abigail because he knows that this is going to be very bad. Um, this is going to be very bad for, for the everyone. So, in verse 14, we read, Now one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. He's ridiculed them. He's demeaned them. He's been contemptuous of them. But he says, But the men were very good to us, and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in the field. So he also is going back and talking about the past and what had, what was had taken place when David's men had had protected them. What's interesting is in verses twelve, uh, excuse me, in verses uh, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, and seventeen, when this young man is giving his report to Abigail, in the Hebrew there are fifty six words. 28, half of those words in those uh, four verses are words of praise for David and his men. So his purpose isn't to praise David. His purpose is to alert her to the problem. But he is making sure that she understands that David and his men are not at fault, and the fault lies with Nabal. He describes David's men as Tov Ma'od, that is, they were very good, and they were always good to Nabal's servants. And this is the same thing, same term that Jonathan used to describe David earlier in 1 Samuel 19.4, that he provided that which was good for Saul. So the, the language here is clear that, that this was completely un, an unjustified reaction uh, by Naval. So David is vindicated. He is a good shepherd, not only of his own people, but of those in Israel around him that he would one day be made king over. And this servant is warning that this is a serious situation. Verse 17, he says, Now therefore know and consider what you will do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his household, for he is such a scoundrel. He is a Belial, is the term. Uh, he's an SOB. He's a son of Belial. And this was a term that was used to describe someone who was worthless, someone who created trouble, and someone who had no integrity. So he is a, a scoundrel, a ne'er-do-well, and no one can speak to him. He is the opposite of humility. No one can talk to him. No one can correct him. Now, the contrast here is that Naval won't listen to anybody, 
But David, who sat on a course of destruction of Naval, will listen to someone, and he's going to listen to a woman. And the fact that Abigail does what she does is completely out of character for women at that time. And it shows that she is willing to do what it takes to protect the family and to protect a husband who doesn't deserve it. And she's not going to be constrained by cultural norms and standards. She is going to function uh, in wisdom and in humility as well in order to protect her family and to protect her husband even though she doesn't, uh, even though he doesn't deserve it. Now, in verse 18, we see Abigail's response. She's a mature believer. She keeps her head in the midst of a crisis. She remains calm. She doesn't panic. She makes a decision which comes from all that she has learned about God and his word uh, as available at that time. And from that well of biblical instruction in her soul, she can produce skillful decisions. The same thing is true for us. Wisdom is the skillful application of the Word of God that we have learned. So uh, even though her response is contrary to cultural norms, she can think outside of the box of her culture because of the biblical wisdom because of the truth that is in her soul. So what we read in verses 18 and 19, then Abigail made haste, took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five seahs of roasted grain, which are large barrels, a hundred clusters of raisin, 200 cakes of figs, and load them on donkeys. Now that's not nearly enough to supply food for 600 men and their families uh, for any length of time. But it is what she has available and can lay hands on to express her gratitude to David for what he has done. She said to her servants, go on before me, I'm coming after you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. Now that doesn't mean she is being rebellious. That means that she's not giving him the opportunity to tell her not to do it. She is going to do that which is best for the family, um, and she's going to do it in submit and w- by remaining submissive uh, to her husband. So she fits the pattern of a godly submissive woman. The same kind of language that is used to describe her is the same kind of language that's used to describe the. Uh, godly woman in Psalm 31. When she meets David, she comes, very unusual for a woman to meet a man uh, who's not her husband, but it's a public meeting. David has his men with her, his 400 men with him, and she has her servants with her, and she comes to David. Now look at what happens in verse 20. So it was, as she rode on the donkey, that she went down under cover of the hill, and there were David and his men coming down toward her. She met them, describes the setting. Verse 21, now David had said, now this is a vow that David makes in verse 21. He says, surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow has done in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him, and he's repaid me evil for good. This is his rationale. He's done evil to me, 
instead of good, and now I'm going to seek vengeance upon him. That's what David is saying. And so it expresses his anger and his hostility. Now in verse 22, David expresses a vow. These two verses together demonstrate a harsh, bitter reaction on the part of David. This is totally out of character for David at this point, showing that he is out of fellowship. And he swears and makes this vow, but it's not a technical vow. He takes an oath that emphasizes uh, the desire to see Naval come to death, but he doesn't swear it in the name of Yahweh. So he doesn't take God's name in vain. He doesn't make a Levitically technical oath here. He says something, though, that's important. He says, may God do so. That is, may God do what? Kill Naval. May God do so, and more also, to the enemies of David, if I leave one male of who belong to him by morning light. Now, the text, the translation's really been cleaned up there. I've pointed out numerous times that the Hebrew is extremely earthy, and it is very realistic. And actually, it doesn't say if I leave one male. It says if I leave anyone who can urinate against a wall alive. Very graphic. Then, may God kill all of my enemies. So, he's emphasizing this, and um, but by not taking a strict oath in the name of the Lord... It protects David from disastrous consequences. The interesting thing is because David responds to her pleas to not attack Naval, then God will be the one who will take Naval out. Of course, David doesn't, doesn't know that at this point. So in verse 23, Abigail saw David. We see her humility. We see her expression of respect. Remember, there's proper protocol towards authorities. This is something that parents need to teach children in terms of good manners, is how do you talk to adults? What kind of language? You say sir and ma'am. How do you talk to adults? How do you talk to those who are your teachers and others in authority? And train children to do that before they're three or four years old. Train them as early as they can begin to talk so that they, this will instill good manners into them that will serve them well all the way through life. It's part of developing authority orientation in children. So she um, fell on her face before David. She is recognizing his authority, who he is as God's anointed to rule over Israel, and she bows down before him. This is not an act that is demeaning to her, In that culture, this is how you showed respect to someone who was uh, in authority. She fell at his feet and said, On me, my Lord, on me let this iniquity be. See, in her humility, she is taking responsibility for the sin of her husband. She's not trying to justify herself, which is typical of arrogance and a lack of humility. She is taking ownership for his Uh, rudeness, for his foolishness, for all of his uh, bad behavior. And she says, "Uh, let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. 
please, verse 25. Let me see, I lost my place here. Um, Verse 25, please let not one, please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Naval, for as his name is, so is he. Naval is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, do not, did not see the young men of whom my Lord, uh, whom you sent. So what she is saying is, she's saying, my husband is a fool, but I'm taking ownership for whatever mistakes he made. Unfortunately, I didn't see your men uh, when they came. He, he saw them, and now I have to handle the situation. So she pleads with him in verse 26, Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek seek harm for my Lord as Nabal, be as Nabal. What she she is saying here is the Lord has held you back. It's the grace of God that you haven't executed your vengeance on Nabal at this time. God has held you back and let God deal with it. She goes on to say in verse 27, and now this present, which your maidservant, and this present, the word for present is bracha. That is bastardized in English as baraka, okay? It's the Hebrew word bracha, and it means blessing. She said, now this Blessing which your maidservant has brought to you, my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. She is graciously giving this. And then she says in verse 28, Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant. She takes ownership completely. This is the second time she says that she is the one who is responsible. She said, For the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house. What is she doing here? She's reminding David of his destiny. She's reminding David that you don't need to stoop to the level of personal vengeance. You have a greater role and a greater destiny in God's plan, and you need to live your life today in light of that destiny. Don't make a stupid, foolish decision because you're personally irritated with my husband, the fool. He says, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord, that is David, an enduring house, because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord. Look at who you are, David. You fight for the Lord. This is belittling. There's nothing here that should distract you. Evil is not found in you throughout your days. You are a man of integrity. You're a man of character. Don't stoop to this level. Verse 29, she goes on to say, Yet a man has risen to pursue you and to seek your life. That's all. But the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling. Now, what in the world is going on here? This is a fascinating verse. A man has risen to pursue you. That's all. He's seeking your life. But your life is bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord. What's this bundle of the living? Shepherds, when they were out in the field, their sheep usually had two bags with them, two bundles of gear. One was for their food, their 
supplies, their, what they needed in order to survive. That was provided for life. Then in the other bundle, they had their weapons, their sling and their stones to, to cast at the enemies of the sheep and to protect the sheep. So she's saying, the life of my Lord should be bound in the bundle of the living. That is the one bundle. She's using this imagery of being a shepherd to appeal to him. That you should be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies, he will sling out. That's the other bundle. He will sling them out like stones from the pocket of a sling. Let God deal with your enemies. Put it in the hands of the Supreme Court of Heaven. Don't seek personal vengeance. And of course, by using the imagery of a sling, what might come back to David's memory? How God provided him victory over Goliath by using the sling against Goliath. God has a destiny for him. God has provided for him, and he has been anointed to be king over the Israel. So she has a very... A cool way in a very slick way of talking to David without really having a head-on confrontation with him. She is encouraging him with a very uh, subtle reprimand, but she is encouraging him to live in light of God's plan for his life. And then in verse 30, she goes on to say, and it shall come to pass when the Lord, when Yahweh has done for my Lord, that is David, according to all the good that he has uh, spoken concerning you and has appointed you ruler over Israel, that this will not, not be a grief to you. In other words, don't regret this decision. It will come about when God has vindicated you and elevated you to the throne. This is not something that you are going to regret by taking the life of this nobody, this fool that this will be no grief to you nor offense of heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause or that my Lord has avenged himself. But when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. Interesting, because she's married to another man, so what are the ways in which David could remember her? She's just asking, remember, I've done you a favor. When you become king, perhaps there's an opportunity for you to return the blessing to me. I don't think it was anything more than that. And at this point, we see David exhibit genuine repentance. The biblical concept is turning to God. He changes his mind, changes his course of action, and he demonstrates real leadership here by taking the advice and the counsel of someone who's a woman, who's not respected in that way in that culture, and he listens to her and he takes her advice and follows that course of action. He says, Blessed is Yahweh Elohim of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. He realizes God's in control. He said, and blessed, all the way through here, the word blessed is the word bracha for blessing. Uh, blessed is your advice. Blessed are you because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. He recognized she has stopped him from committing an egregious sin. And so he demonstrates this leadership quality of humility and grace orientation. He goes on to explain, 
For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you'd hurried to come to meet me, surely by morning light, no males would have been left to Nabal. There wouldn't have been anybody left who urinated on a wall. So David received from her hand what she had brought to him and said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I've heeded your voice and respect your person. Now what happens after this is that Abigail goes back and she knows that she needs to tell uh, Naval what has happened. But when she gets home, he's in the middle of having the celebration, the feast that went with the shearing of the sheep. So he's having a party and he is... Uh, been uh, he's very drunk and has been in the wine and so she knows that that all anything she says is either going to be ignored or or it's going to anger him so she shows wisdom and she just goes to bed she knows this is the right time to talk to him so in the morning when he's sobered up basically when the wine had gone from Naval and his wife had told him these things that, that his heart died within him and he became like a stone he realized what had happened and how close he came to death and losing everything that he had and then we're told just very briefly as almost an aside then it happened after about 10 days that the Lord struck Nabal and he died God brought justice to the situation then in the epilogue, verses 39 to 44, we learn that when David heard that Naval was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord, that is, praise the Lord, because he's pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Naval. God has defended me. God has executed justice, and he kept me from evil. For the Lord has returned the wickedness of Naval on his own head, David did not have to do that. So David is learning with Saul, don't take Saul out. Here, don't take vengeance on Naval, and then he's going to have a third time to ex- to apply that lesson in verse tw- in chapter twenty six. Rather, when the servants of David come to Abigail at Carmel, oh, then he says, "I left out the last half of verse thirty nine. For the Lord has returned the wickedness of Naval on his own head." And then David sent and proposed to Abigail to take her as his wife. Notice the balance of words in this verse. We hear David and his response his statement of praise to the Lord and Naval, and then just this very brief statement that he sent a proposal to Abigail to come and be his wife. She would be his third wife. And when the servants of David come to Abigail, they spoke to her saying, David sent us to you to ask you to become his wife. Then she arose, bowed her face to the earth, and said, here's your maidservant, a servant to wash the feet of the servant's of my Lord. In other words, yes, and she will serve them. So she rose in haste. Notice she doesn't waste any time. Uh, she's going to know she's going to get a much better deal with David. And with five of her maidens, she then uh, follows the messengers of David, becomes his wife. Then we're told that David also took a Hinoam of Jezreel. And this probably had taken place before this. So that was his second wife. She's his third wife. He had married Saul's daughter, but uh, now Saul had caused the, brought an end to that marriage. Verse 44, but Saul had given Michelle, Michal, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was from Galim. So what's the point here? 
The point is that God works in our lives to teach us humility and grace orientation. A leader, whether you're a leader at work, whether you're a leader in the home, whether you're a leader at work, and as Christians, we should all be leaders to some degree. We need to exhibit humility and grace orientation. Personally, when we are attacked or assaulted, whether just or unjustly or unjustly, we should respond in grace. We need to let God deal with it, let the Supreme Court of Heaven deal with it, and as the Scripture says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. Put it in the hands of the Supreme Court of Heaven and not try to deal with it ourselves, especially if it's going to be in a wrong way. I don't know what it is today, but my mother used to always say, two wrongs don't make a right. And that is something that we should recognize is still true. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study, to go through this passage, to be reminded of the lesson that is taught here. And Father, we pray that you would help us to uh, submit to your authority, because only in submission to authority do we develop grace orientation. Only in submission to your authority do we develop genuine humility. And only in the development of grace orientation and genuine humility can we learn to be true leaders. Leaders in our families, leaders in the home, uh, leaders at work, where we exhibit these tremendous qualities of, of uh, spiritual integrity that reflect your character. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.